Well, thank you, Len. Uh, please keep your Bible or apps open while I get myself sorted here. My name's Scott Hazelton. If we haven't met, I don't usually get to preach, uh, but I've been given the opportunity this morning. Uh, and so it's great to be with you in person and get the first Guernsey back. Uh, so Lucky's with us this morning. Well, after a winter like that in a town like this, with volcanic soil moisture, moisture levels as they are, and warmth apparently coming, uh, there's one word on many orange folk people's minds. The garden. Now, this may be your happy place, or it may be your miserable place because you're married to someone for whom it is their happy place, and you've become their lackey and their labourer. Now, your garden may be large and rambling, Ornate and immaculate, cute and pot-sized, consumable or decorative, whatever your garden may be, I know one thing about it. You're an expert at growing weeds. Now, the history of the human species has been a storied conquest against the invasive and destructive effect of weeds. Indeed, one of the earliest scenes from biblical history, you may know, is Adam following the fall will now toil and be frustrated by the thorns and thistles of his labour. But outside of biblical history, just in our human history, whether it's farming for produce or gardening for pleasure, wherever we till the soil, we've learned that both produce and paspalum, bananas and bindis, potatoes and Patterson's curse will be the result. And given this reality, our most recent history has included some monumental advancements in the fight against weeds. If we were gathering 50 years ago, we might be talking about the emergence of glyphosate fertilisers, a broadleaf spray, previously unthought of that while farming and cropping, you can simply hit it with the roundup and your weeds will disappear. Turn of the century, every Aussie lawn lover's dream we could stand and weed and feed a dual mixture while an iced beverage of choice could be held in the other hand on a Sunday afternoon. A smug smile on the face. That's right, love. The clover's dying and the is growing all in one. Selective herbicides was the great frontier. But these days, with conscience building around organic and sustainable farming, Fears over chemical residues and carcinogenic connections. The future, we're told, in terms of weed suppression, might lie in the hand of thousands of mini-drones equipped with high-definition cameras, ready to recognise every known weed leaf structure in crops to administer a lethal dose of infrared rays, denaturing the DNA and silently moving on to achieve a weed-free wheat crop. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? I think it's exciting, but I'm a science nerd. You see, as human beings, we're not only familiar with the fight against weeds, we expect to win. In both the garden and the farming sector, the perfect crop or the prettiest patch is deemed successful when weeds have been eradicated. Success in gardening is defined by an absence of weeds. Now, Jesus knows that this is the way we think. 
In the parables in Matthew 13, he leans heavily on the shared experience of his audience when it comes to the daily grind of subsistence farming. Have you noticed his parables seem to lean on an understanding of farming? In his parables, Jesus will always get his audience on the hook by throwing out a scenario that's familiar to them in their personal everyday life, farming, sowing, harvesting, weeding, and then he wants to arc from that which is everyday to teach a divine truth of the kingdom of heaven. This morning we eavesdrop on Jesus and this crowd. And I'm hopeful that the last three or four minutes have served to put all of us on the same hook that Jesus now had them on. And as we've thought about weeds and gardening and farming this morning, our brain should now be doing something like this. How does my thinking about weeds provide a framework for understanding something of the kingdom? How does my thinking about weeds provide a framework to now understand something of the kingdom of heaven? Remember our setting, Jesus' teaching fame is crescendoing. In verse 1 of the chapter, he's gone out from the house down by the sea. The crowds have followed him. He gets into the boat. The crowds build. They stand on the shore. He sits in the boat and he teaches. And notice Matthew tells us he teaches them many things in parables, many things. And then we get a couple of them. Last week we've had one. This week we get another. Next week we'll get another. Verse 24 Let us wrestle with the parable again. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away, and when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned. Gather the wheat then and bring it into my barn. 60 seconds with the person sitting next to you. What do you think the parable might mean? Go. All right. I wonder what you might have come up with. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to do that exact exercise with a group of adults. Uh, We were sitting around the table. We had seven or eight of us at varying ages and stages of of our Christian walk. Some uh, maybe not yet Christian, others having been Christian quite a long time. We read the parable and I asked the same question, what's it mean? Uh, Some of the ideas of what it could have meant went something like this. You can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, Every rose has a thorn. Be careful what you weed because they might be a flower. Life is made richer by its challenges. Uh, Whimsical and well-meaning statements for sure, but I was reminded in that moment of the difficulty of the parable. So I wonder if you find parables difficult. See, they've found their way into pop culture. And oftentimes I think that parables are treated like a pop proverb rather than a parable. They're seen as a wise saying with multiple possibilities and applications depending on who you are and where you live. But a parable is almost the exact opposite 
of that. You see, a parable is an everyday story with a spiritual meaning. It's not an allegory for life, and not every detail in the story has a deep spiritual significance. There's generally just one important point which is revealed by the storyteller, much like a riddle requires explanation and context. The word parable comes from the same word in mathematics from which we get parabola. Now, if you hate maths, I'm sorry, but go with me. Uh, Both of them come from the same root word. And it's a sense of casting something alongside something else. In mathematics, the parabola is a curved line which bends around a single fixed focal point. That's helpful, isn't it? By understanding and examining the curvature of the parabola, the focal point emerges. Likewise with parables, a careful journey around the story with explanation ought to reveal that single focal point in terms of the kingdom of heaven. And our question should be, well, what is it about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is driving at by telling this story? What does the parable mean? Now, I ask that Len only read half of the Bible section this morning for good reason, because in our parables in chapter 13, oftentimes we get an opportunity to not just think about what it might mean, Jesus himself will explain what it definitely does mean. And some of you then might have been quite clever and said, well, let's go and read ahead because Jesus is going to tell us. And that's exactly where we're at right now. We get to hear from the lips of Jesus, not what it could mean, but exactly what it does mean. Verse 36 in your Bibles. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came up to him and said, there's a fair bit of chitter-chatter going on about that weed parable you told us. What does it mean? Can you explain to us the parable? Verse 37, we get Jesus' focal point. The one who sowed the seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. What do we make of this parable? And what do we make of Jesus' explanation? Four things I'm going to suggest are helpful. Number one, the weeds of the parable cannot be applied to every hardship we encounter in this life. Jesus demands a narrower application than that. Look again at the second half of verse 38. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The parable is not addressing the the struggle of the unwanted diagnosis, the natural disaster, the financial hardship, the loneliness of lockdown, general illness or familial tensions at home. It's not that broad, it's far narrower. While these 
are many of our life's challenges right now, this parable is not directly applied to them. No, in this parable, Jesus says the weeds are people of the evil one. And these people permeate the kingdom of heaven. A loose and somewhat proverbial reading like life is made richer by the tapestry of its challenges has absolutely no connectedness whatsoever to the teaching in this parable of Jesus. Instead, Jesus is clearly outlining that life in the kingdom is a life of God's people lived amongst oppositional people and their actions. Number two, well, if the weeds are people, who are these weedy people? Again, Jesus is direct in his explanation. They are, verse 38, people of the evil one, and 39, sown by the devil. The most immediate explanation of who these people are is the Pharisees of the time. You see, these Pharisees carried an external air of religiosity, congregating around and within the Jewish communities, but they were opposed to the spread of the gospel and the news that Jesus brought. In the Gospel of John, there's a striking echo of this same language in a famous chapter, chapter 8, as Jesus goes toe-to-toe with opposition to the kingdom. Listen to the words of John's Gospel as he describes what Jesus said to the Pharisees there. John 8, 48, Jesus says to them, You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. As Jesus stands against the opposition of the Pharisees, he says to them in John exactly how he describes opposition in this parable. So this parable is first and foremost dealing with the problem of the spread of the kingdom as it's attacked and suppressed by the work of the Pharisees. If you flipped back a chapter, in Matthew 12, it's all about the Pharisees and their opposition to the work of Jesus. If you went back there, it's like four exciting quarters in an AFL grand final. First quarter, Jesus' disciples break the Sabbath law, the Pharisees condemn Jesus. Second quarter, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. The Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. Third quarter, Jesus drives out a demon. The Pharisees accuse him of being demonic. Fourth quarter, the Pharisees demand a sign. And Jesus says, you're worse than the people of Nineveh. That's just happened in Matthew 12. And then come the parables. And the burden that's hanging over the people is, Jesus, what's wrong with the kingdom? There's all this opposition. Something's going wrong. By the end of chapter 12, listen to what Jesus says about what it takes to be part of the kingdom. Jesus' family stands outside. They want to see Jesus. Jesus instead looks at his disciples and says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Being part of this kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with religiosity or genetics. It's an upended kingdom. Throughout chapter 13's parables, which is our focus for these three weeks at OEC, 
Matthew doesn't mention the Pharisees again by name, but he's referring to them through the parables and he's dealing with the burden of the people. Why is this so hard? See, the gathering crowd of gospel-receiving people are being warned here that this kingdom will have opposition and it's going to grow. So if the primary weed definition are the Pharisees, what does that mean for us today? See, a correct interpretation of the identity of the weedy people is reasonably easy when we read the parables after chapter 12. But how do we identify a weed here today? Well, back in Matthew 13, zoom in on verse 41 for me we're told that the Son of Man in the final judgment will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. In classic parable fashion, there are only two categories of people. The people of the kingdom and everyone else. Jesus pulls no punches in his explanation. We must feel the weight of verse 41. Those who are destined for weeding out are all who do evil. So though it was inclusive of the Pharisees, it is inclusive to those who will not receive the gospel, both in that age and every age in between. Third observation, there's little confusion about who is in and who is out in the parable. As a uni student growing up in the New England, I used to spend my summers working as a farmhand, uh, and my most memorably bad job was the one of pulling castor oil plants from a recently sown crop. Uh, To underline my point, I can't actually remember what the crop was, because my job wasn't to identify it, I had to learn to identify the castor oil plant. I became an expert in spotting that weed. I could stand a mile off, see the unique leaf structure casting shade in the middle of a massive paddock, park the motorbike, walk in amongst the field and spend 10 hours in the heat of the Armadale sun pulling castor oil plants. It's a miserable job. But I'll never forget what those weeds looked like. They were obvious. They stood out. I think some unhelpful comments have been made at times about this parable and the type of weed that Jesus talks about. You may have read about it as as a tear or the Darnell weed. And sometimes it's pushed to say, oh, there's similarity to the wheat plant. That is not the point at all. The clear and obvious point of the parable is that these weeds are noticeable and it's problematic and we know what we do with weeds. Look at verse 27. The first response of the workers, they know their weeds, is, didn't you sow good seed? Where'd they come from? They can see them like that. This is obviously a different plant. They're immediately concerned by the presence of the weed. They don't come to Jesus and say, hey, we think everything's fine. It all looks pretty much the same. Let's keep an eye on things. That's not the story. Their first glance prompts them to request permission to start weed pulling. It'd be easy for them to go and pull them up. We can see them. So weeds are quite simply anyone and everyone who fails to respond to the sowing of the good seed of the gospel into their lives and respond accordingly. And we know, don't we, that as soon as you get serious about kingdom living, 
we're going to find opposition and weeds. Number four. Friends, there is a final reckoning. The parable of the weeds is first and foremost a parable of judgment. This is both sobering and reorienting for the Christian. How is it reorienting? It reminds us that life as a Christian in the current age is marked by grimy hard work. We are called to stand against weed-driven opposition and not to just eradicate it. There's no motive here for the establishment of a militant state. It reminds us that we must not approach life as a wheat plant in God's kingdom in the same way that we approach weeding in our gardens. Do you see that? We must not approach life in the kingdom in the same way that we approach life over our garden kingdoms. While I am king and lord of my veggie patch and every weed that I find there is subject to my right condemnation, I am not king and lord of God's global patch. He is. Young people, high schoolers, hear Jesus carefully. If you choose to follow him as your Lord and Saviour, your life in the kingdom is worth it, but it's a life lived amongst weeds. It's not our job to pull them out. It's clear, isn't it? It's God's job, and he promises he will do it. We need to hand over our instinctive reaction to want to play God and instead lead into his call on us to stand firm as the kingdom of God does its mustard seed thing, growing, building, spreading, expanding. But a day is coming when the divine clock ticks over and God will come as the divine weeder. Just glance again at verse 43 to 43. Just take a glance at the picture of that final moment. Notice it's all God's work in judgment. It's all God's work. It's done at the command of the Son of Man, not the sons of men. It's action by angels, not people's. It's a final weeding, not a seasonal correction. And then, verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Do you long for weed-free living? I do. It's right that we should. At the final harvest against the backdrop of final judgment... The destruction of all evil works and all evil people, we are told there is a shining moment. Why did Jesus say that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father? He started teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then we're told the day is coming where there is shining like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. I think he's lifting our eyes. Kingdom living now is glorious and grimy. But at its consummation, at the final judgment, our great hope is that the grime of the current struggle against evil is stripped away and all that is left is the glory of the Father reflected perfectly in the harvested people of his planting. And in that moment, we shine like the sun in the presence of our divine gardener. But until then, let us stand together as the wheat of God's garden, 
firm and unshaken as we await the day of his divine harvest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching us in parables. We thank you for this hope that we have of that final day. Lord, as we face opposition, I pray that you would remind us that you haven't set up a perfect garden and that it's broken, but that you've set up a growing kingdom amidst opposition that will one day be seen in all its glory because you are its divine gardener. Until that day, please be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.